You know there's a way for nurses to start a business, but there's so many moving pieces. Cut through the crap. It's time to go right to the source and get real about what's working in business and marketing for nurses with your host, the founder of Nursepreneurs, Katie Harris. Hi, it's Katie Harris, and this is an episode of the Nursepreneur Podcast. Today, we have Brad Ferris with us. He's a co-owner of the Clinic Grower. Brad, thanks so much for being here with us today. My pleasure. Awesome. All right. Why don't you uh, give us some background of, about you as a nurse and how it kind of, and then I want to hear all about Clinic Grower, but yeah, let's start with your background first. Um, where did you start out as a nurse? Um, so I actually had a, a little bit of a different path. So graduating high school, I actually wanted to go into nursing. Um, but it wasn't maybe the cool thing for a sporty guy to do. Um, no, just being honest, um, it was, you know, kind of early 2000s. Um, I actually completed my graduate diploma in business first and then went into nursing, thinking that, you know, I would want to run a hospital or, you know, be some kind of big wig and stuff like that. So I entered my training in 2005, graduated in 2009. And as soon as I essentially graduated, I fell in love with the bedside. So I spent about 10 and a half years um, at the bedside doing everything from pediatric emergent trauma to oncology, to neurology, to even a little bit of fertility for about four or five years. Um, really, really loved it. And then had the opportunity to co-found the company that I'm running right now, um, which is essentially a medical marketing agency um, for different medical practices in North America. Awesome. Um, okay, you say 2009, and then it's 10 and a half years, and I'm like blown away because <laughs> I can't believe how much that, that seems like yesterday, 2009. Um, right. Yeah, that's funny. I actually had aspirations of like running a hospital too, until I kind of got into the hospital, and then I was like, no, <laughs> that's not my path. Okay, so um, how did you go from being a nurse to being in a business? Like, there, I mean, that's a, a big gap there. Um, so how does that kind of idea percolate and, and uh, get realized? Yeah, so I mean, I, I think I'll be honest for a lot of us, you know, when we're working inside an institution, that's how we're trained in school is to work inside an institution. And some of us love it. And some of us always feel like it's a different planet. It's a foreign world. And that was kind of me. Um, you know, when I would hear our organizations talk about patient centered care, but really be focusing on provider centered care, mm -hmm. I'd kind of put my hand up and say, you know, it's a great buzz term to say patient-centered, but we're not patient-centered, we're still provider-centered. And I really saw this opportunity to go out into private practices and you know, outside of these organizations and really establish a culture and a conversation with patients that truly was patient-centered. Um, and you know, in, in my role, you know, we, you know, a little bit more background too was, you know, I was starting to participate in some clinical research. Um, I found it very entertaining and interesting. And one of the things that I found was, you know, when I was at the bedside, getting initial consents, doing screenings, it's a very person dependent process. You can't do more than one person at a time. Um, so we actually started experimenting training in artificial intelligence to speak like a nurse so that we could screen multiple people at multiple times. And would that be something that patients would adopt if, again, we took that therapeutic relationship approach to it? And lo and behold, two and a half years later, um, you know, we're now participating in some of the COVID studies. Um, you know, we use the same technology in our dental practices as you know, also some of the other practices and patients really like it. They enjoy interacting with it. A lot of the time they feel like they're talking to a real person, which is great. Um, and, you know, it's really providing private practices with an opportunity to, you know, take patients that are moderately interested in their services 
to really engaging with them and participating in treatments. Okay, I love that distinction that you make between patient-centric care and provider-centered uh, centric care because um, that is really, really true, and I've never thought of it in those terms because we always hear those buzzwords, like you say. But um, you know, and we recently just had an episode where the physicians were in an uproar because we were transferring patients from our sister hospital to us, and we made we facilitated it so that um, the patient didn't have to be discharged and then readmitted, which is a huge. Yep burden for everybody, but the physicians were upset because they were losing money now. <laughs> it's like, okay, but it's not about you, <laughs> you know, because they weren't getting that money for the admission. Yeah. One of the great examples I used right before I left the hospital was when I was working in peds oncology, we would have our kids come in depending on the protocol for hydration days. And we would make the families arrive at seven or seven fifteen in the morning. Uh, we would do all their vitals, their lab work, you know, get everything set up, and then they would wait for two hours. And why were they waiting for two hours? Of course, they were waiting for the consultant to arrive. Um, and the consultant would arrive and sit down with the resident or the fellow, and, you know, then they would go off and do the assessment. And, you know, I would always sit there and say, like, why did we have the patients come in that early if they're not being met by the medical team? And it was because the medical team was kind of like, well, you know, most of the stuff can get done before we kind of arrive. And I always advocated, you know, there's really no reason a resident can come in at seven o'clock in the morning, complete their initial assessment, order their labs, still have everything ready at nine o'clock. Um, but, you know, when we talked about patient-centered care, those types of things never seemed to be adopted. And it really was the families that would have benefited from that. And we were organizing our day to benefit the providers. Right. And I think that's kind of a key point because that's where you do get really frustrated and maybe even cynical, like working in the hospital is because, you know, we are so focused on um, the way things are. And if you bring up these ideas, it's met with a lot of resistance or people don't want to change or, you know, it's just how we always do it and that kind of stuff. And it's just like, then you kind of, like for me, I got kind of beaten down because I had all these ideas and they were just like, nah. <laughs> and I was like, no, but really we could do some good here. And it sounds like you you had the same problem. Yeah, a lot of a lot of people told me that the things I'm doing today couldn't be done, and I'm very happy to showcase on a daily basis that you know all of those ideas, um, you know all of the research that I put into patient relationship generation really is you know drawing you know drawing success out in private practices, and the hope would be that that can then be applied back into institutions you know in the future. Okay, so now do you remember the day that um, you came up with this idea? I mean, was it just a perfect idea that just came to you or was it something that evolved? Um, the initial idea was there. I mean, I think artificial intelligence has been around for at least the last five or six years with you know, moderate interest. Um, what I was really interested in doing was, you know, more just from at first a simple survey intake. So when you're doing clinical research, there's a protocol and you got, you're essentially looking for, you know, how well does the person fit? And I remember voice training the text messages at first in my office here at home. My wife walked in and she said, why are you talking to it like it's an idiot? And I said, well, what do you mean? And she goes, you don't talk to your patients like that. Why, like, why would they want a robot to talk to them like that? And it kind of triggered this little light in my head where it's like, you know, what do we do as nurses? Right? We give a lot of gratitude. We ask a lot of permission. Right? We build a lot of rapport with our patients. And you know, as great as Alexa and Siri and Google Assistant is, that's one of the things that they're lacking is that kind of emotional intelligence and kind of that ultimate empathy that we're really great at doing for nursing. So the thought was, okay, well, what if I did train an artificial intelligence with gratitude and empathy? What impact would that have? And so far, it's been amazing. That's awesome. I actually saw a Saturday Night Live skit where the Alexa was like, it was for old elderly people. And it was like, 
the, I don't know if you saw that episode, but it was hilarious. And it did have that kind of emotional intelligence um, aspect to it. Uh, I'm sure not to the degree that uh, you're talking about, but all right. So tell me more about like, um, like how did you know that this could be your business and not just something that you do for an institution? That was probably a little bit more of a transition, to be honest. Um, so, you know, everything I'm a very, um, you know, the other thing that we're good at as nurses is process sometimes. Um, so I'm very process baby step oriented. So the first thought was, you know, could I get one person to do this? And then could I get 10? Then could I get 100? And once we got to 100 doing it essentially simultaneously, that's when I really realized that there would be a market for it. And as I started to do my research, because that's also where, you know, we're trained well in terms of, you know, thinking from a research focus, I would have conversations with clinical research organizations that had call centers. And I would say to them, you know, how many people do you have working at your call center right now? And they would say 20. And I'd say, well, how many conversations can you have at any one time? And they would say, well, Brad, obviously we're maxed at 20. Like, we only have 20 people, we only have 20 conversations. And the light went off in my head where I was like, well, what if I could have all 20 conversations simultaneously at the same time? But what if I also could have 200 going on at the same time? Then what you're doing is not, you know, I think the fear is that AI replaces people's jobs. But what I was finding with the call center was we were spending all this time chasing people, trying to track them down, get them on the phone, only to find out that, again, in research, 95% of people aren't going to fit the protocol. Um, wouldn't it be better for the AI to do all the heavy lifting and essentially deliver those prospects to the, the individuals in the final interview, knowing that they're a really good fit for the, the research project? Um, so it was really kind of about reorienting the resources to work smarter rather than kind of, you know, bringing in a technology that was going to take everyone's jobs. Their jobs, we can't replace a real conversation yet with technology. So that still has to happen with a real person, but just use it smarter. Um, and, you know, for the COVID studies, obviously right now, you know, they're trying to get so many people in in such a short period of time that that's really where the technology showcases its strengths because you've got people then on the other side booking um, or we use our technology to book as well. Okay, so did you develop this technology yourself? I did. Okay, and how did you do that? I mean, how, do you, how did somebody get started in doing something like that? It was hard. I, you had to, <laughs> so if anyone, if anyone wants to, um, just to kind of give them a heads up, when you code a website, you kind of teach yourself what's called HTML. Um, doing this type of stuff is what's called JSON. So it's completely different. Um, I am fortunate now that I have a team of developers working underneath me. So I'm more of the vision of what I want done. But really early on, it was me essentially developing the technology by trial and error. Um, just like right now, we're starting to voice train the technology. Um, and that's, you know, a really cumbersome, awkward process. But as it starts to learn, it gets better. And, you know, it's just, it's a lot of trial and error. It's always testing. It's always thinking, you know, how can I make that conversation more engaging? Um, and the perfect example for any of us is how many of us have called a doctor's office and been, you know, heard on the other line, you know, doctor's office, please hold. And on to hold we go. Uh, <laughs> it's you know, that's definitely, definitely not patient centered. Um, when you give the opportunity for someone to really engage, it's, it's quite amazing kind of how long people stay involved in the conversation. Right. Um, okay, so I'm still trying to wrap my mind around, um, you know, how, so th this would be kind of like the mindset barrier for me, and maybe you can walk me through this, because, uh, you know, I might think of something like this, but to actually act on it, like, why, what, what is it about you that you thought that, oh, I have this idea, I see this technology, I'm going to go learn this, Jason, and develop this process myself and take it to market? 
Yeah, it was really just, there was no way for me to have that 10 people conversation at any one time without looking for a technology piece. Um, and I was fortunate enough at the time that just, you know, Google had started to release, you know, and I think Microsoft's got Azure, Google has their own AI as well. You know, really just kind of, you know, starting to watch a lot of YouTube, reading a lot of articles, asking a lot of smart software engineers. And then just, you know, once I got into kind of the playground, it, you know, probably definitely took me longer than I wanted to, you know, if I had just hired somebody out, but I really wanted to understand it because I also really wanted to have the control over the conversation. I didn't want it to become, you know, like when you ask Alexa about the news and it's very, I call it transactional, Katie, but -hmm. it's like in, in medicine, we have so many transactional conversations that we shouldn't be surprised that patients start to check out on us. And really what you want to do is you want to create something that's therapeutic that benefits them. So an example is, you know, if I'm going to go see my dentist, I call into the dentist office. I'm not usually graded with like a, hello, thanks for calling. So great that you reached out to us. (laughs) What's your, what's your name? What's your zip code? What's your insurance? And what's your date of birth? And medically we're great at doing that because it's like a triage process, right? It's like, bam, 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 I need all of my facts, but we're not really looking into the lived experience of the patient and understanding how much does that drive their desire just really into the toilet. Like then they're just kind of like, you really don't care about me, you care about my insurance. Right, that's a good point, I like that. Um, So how do, uh, do you write the scripts for the AI or how does that, how does that work? Yeah, so when we originally started out, that's exactly what we did, we wrote out the scripts. Um, now we're at the point where we're fortunate enough that if we've got, you know, say 20 or 24 different scripts running at any one time, now it's a data-driven process. So we know that by inserting gratitude at this point or putting a thank you in at this point or asking a question at that point, starts to deliver better completion results. So that's ultimately the goal. The goal is if you put 100 people into the queue, you know, do 79 of them complete within, you know, five or six minutes or do 98% of them complete. And as we, you know, as we go along, what we're starting to find is different populations. So an OA knee pain population actually wants to be engaged a little bit differently than the vaccine population. And what we're kind of doing is creating like a best practice um, template or platform where, you know, if someone came to us and said, you know, it's atopic dermatitis, um, we could look at the stats and say, okay, this type of narrative or approach is actually what's going to deliver the best results instead of what you're seeing in the vaccine study. Um, wow, that sounds like a ton of work. <laughs> so is this something that you financed on your own or, or how, where's the funding for this coming? Yeah, from? we're actually very, we're very fortunate that we've been completely self-funded at this point in time. Um, not that we've not had inquiries from businesses um, about coming in on the funding. I'll bet. Um, but it's one of those things where, again, if you've got a good plan, and that's what I, you know, I, I, I'm sure you echo this in a lot of your courses as well. You know, don't just come in and put a whole bunch of money down on the table thinking that it's going to take off. Be very smart about it. Be very strategic. Make sure it makes sense. Yeah, if you write that first website and it's a, a GoDaddy, I mean, what, for 25 or $30, that's okay. You don't have to go to the $2,000 website right away. But if you're really confident your $2,000 website is going to launch you to the next phase, then make sure that you're funding that appropriately and doing it in the right steps. Often what ends up happening is people put their money in the wrong places, hoping it's going to generate a result. And what we really wanted to do is make sure that, you know, could we have gone to market much faster? Absolutely. Would we have lost a lot of control? Definitely. Um, and for me, again, maybe it's a nice um, chair to sit on high on my horse. Um, 
But as the nurse, it's about the relationship with the patient. It's not about how many people I can move through a process for a financial benefit. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I love that um, because that's the one thing that we talk about too. Because, uh, you know, the one thing I do say to my audience a lot is if you're just in this for the money, you know, this is the wrong place for you to be. You just need to keep moving and find something else um, because all of us are that are doing this. Um, or if you're just looking to make money, I mean, go invest in something because there's a big difference between making money and entrepreneurialism. And I think the entrepreneurial spirit is about helping people. Um, so how did you find uh, your beta testers to do all these scripts? That sounds like a lot of work too. So we already had some um, relationships already with certain clinical research organizations doing kind of very traditional marketing, right? You would do a Facebook ad to a lead, you know, and then they would just have that called up with the call center. So it was actually a pretty natural progression to us where we basically, you know, and I, I, ad I advocate this to anyone that I coach too. You know, if you can give somebody something that really doesn't cost you a whole lot, but that gives them significant value, whether it's a case study, whether it's a free trial, whether it's a test drive, that's kind of how we launched our beta. Um, and then we did our pilot after that. And now we're, we're kind of basically, you know, launching out. So we went to these, you know, close, I would consider them close friends or colleagues of mine that run organizations. And I said, Hey, what's the study that you're struggling with the most? Would you give me the benefit of the doubt to run this for four weeks? No cost. You just put in the ad spend and let's see what the results are. And even within 48 hours, um, I mean, we call our AI Kate, that's her name. It was basically like the, the person that you trusted most in high school was the name that I came up with. Um, and we had patients calling into their call centers asking to speak with Kate. After interacting <laughs> with me. And they, they all looked really weird because the owners of those two businesses said, we don't have a Kate. And I'm like, you're missing the point. They don't really want to talk to an actual person. They're just saying to you, I had this great experience with the AI who I think is a real person. I'm asking, can you have that? It's like when we do shift change, right? It's, you know, ideally a patient really does like you, but they're hoping that at the end of the shift, they get another nurse that's just like you or better. Um, and that's kind of the transition that we really focused on was, you know, that was our, that was kind of our litmus test was when they started calling in saying like, hey, I, I talked to Kate, is Kate available? I only want to speak with Kate. We really knew at that point that we had something special. And that really helped to drive adoption in those businesses of not just doing it in a test, but now rolling out across the organization. So they don't, so it doesn't sound like a computer voice? Well, no, it's actually not voiced um, at all right now. It's getting there. Well, we're basically entirely SMS based. Okay, so. For text, text conversation, you can essentially be screened for. A, oh, a oh, oh, it's text conversation. Okay, I see. Um, so the patients don't, some of the patients don't realize they're talking with, I guess, an AI. I'm going to call it a bot for lack of a better word, but yep. they, okay. Yeah, taking, um, essentially taking a chat bot and putting a nursing spin on it. So it's like a nursing, a nursing therapeutic chat bot. Okay. Okay. And then you're looking to do voice, uh, some kind of voice activation or something. Yeah. The goal would be some people still want, you know, like for my parents, <clears throat> they may be, my parents are in our mid sixties. It may be that they're very comfortable doing it through a text message or an online survey. Um, our long-term goal, you know, three years out is, you know, essentially where the participant or the patient wants to interact with the software. We have a suite available to them. So they're not feeling like they're getting funneled into something. They really have the flexibility to choose how they want to engage with the software. Uh, yeah, I love that. Cause I do hate, you know, I, I, this is 
<laughs> uh, just kind of an insight with me. Like, so I needed an eyeglass appointment and I didn't want to call any of the places that forced me to call and talk to somebody because I didn't want to be put on hold. So I ended up going with one of these places that had an online appointment um, checker that I could do. But I mean, I, to me, like this spot would be amazing. Like I would love to just, you know, type in and say, hey, I'm looking for an appointment and then just kind of, and is that something that you could do with this um, AI system that you have? Or is it yeah. more complex, the conversations? No, I mean, it, it, I mean, in, in its simplest form, they, they get pre-qualified. If someone doesn't fit the criteria, the bot's intelligent enough to kind of circle back and say, hey, we've got these other opportunities that you might be interested in. Or, you know, can I collect the following PHI from you to, you know, make sure that we've got your um, profile updated in our database for future studies. If you are a great fit, it gives you the opportunity to either one, talk to a real person and book that appointment in person, or says to you, know, when are you available? We've got spots on Mondays and Wednesday from, you know, from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. And when someone replies back, you know, can I do Tuesday at 1.30? The intelligence checks the calendar at the site, sees if that's available, and either says, you know, here's an alternative, or great, I've got you confirmed at that date and time. Here's all your directions. Off you go. Oh my God, that is so wonderful. Like, when is this going to be in every clinic in, <laughs> in the country? Because this well, is so much better. Yeah, that's what we're starting with. So we've got about, um, between our dental practices and our, we do vein clinics as well in our clinical research. Obviously our priority is to roll out for all of our clients, you know, as soon as possible. Um, but yeah, the goal would be, you know, I just know even for myself, um, I, I'm doing a lunch and learn tomorrow for one of my practices as an example. And we're going through this difference between transactional conversations and therapeutic conversations. And I always kind of say to them, you know, like, you, when you're talking to someone on the phone and you get that feeling like the glass is only open an inch at the front desk, you get a much different reaction than someone where the, the window is open wide, they're telling you about their day, you're happy to see them. Um, you know, a text message can relay that where it's like, you know, Katie, your appointment, date time, that's it. Very transactional. Whereas if you just put in a subtle thing like, hey, Katie, really looking forward to seeing you on Tuesday at nine o'clock in the morning, Dr. Jones is already in set here's a map with our directions. Oh, wow. totally, totally different experience. And what people don't realize, and you can do, go and do this, I challenge anyone to do it. If you look into the literature on appointments, best practices, there is no research on the content of the message. Everyone has looked at SMS versus voicemail versus email, you know, what the show rate is if you don't show the first time, what's the indication for different areas of medicine. No one focused on the content, and that's what we do. Oh, we wow. focus on we focus on how do we make that content deliver the patient to the front door of the practice because when we don't do it we're missing this huge opportunity so you know most research shows to create a therapeutic relationship ideally 55 to 75 minutes my mentality is why can't i start that right at the appointment booking process and make someone feel like the connection that they're going to have with that staff is exactly the same that they had when they were booking their appointment um, yeah, this is, this is just, uh, this is going to change everything. I mean, this is, and you know, one of the things that I want to say and, and really point out here is that, um, cause one of the things that I do teach in, in my programs is coming up with like a, a big idea or the problem that you're solving and you're taking, uh, the problem that you're solving is these transactional conversations, right? So, and turning them into, and your solution is the therapeutic conversations. And honestly, how you do that could be like, I mean, there could be a million different ways to do that. And your gateway is AI and 
just changing that format there. But the, you know, bringing up the conversation of uh, transactional versus therapeutic is like a, an incredible conversation. It's just not happening. It's not, it's nobody, like you said, nobody's talking about it. And I mean, this could sounds like a fodder for many PhD dissertations. <laughs> yeah, oh, that would be incredible. But I have, a, I have a couple colleagues that are starting their own medical practices, right? They just completed their doctorate, their MPs. And one of the things I've challenged them to say is, <clears throat> again, really even in our own independent practices, adopt this mindset, right? So an example, I'll give two. When I used to work in pediatrics, I used to have charge nurses that would roll their eyes at me because they would give me an assignment. But I would still go in with the kids and the families and introduce myself and say, hey, my name is Brad. I'd like to be your nurse today. Is that okay with you? They didn't really have a choice. Charge nurses were behind me. But that permission was really, really important, right? To especially a patient where, you know, I'm a, I'm a 6'4", big guy coming in to a little person's room. They loved it. So what I always say to my, my colleagues is, you know, we get into these transactional conversations all the time. We don't realize it. So Katie, if you, you know, you and I just had an interaction in clinic, you said to me, as you're walking out the door, have a nice day. I would reply, have a nice day. Transactional. What are we best tooled for when we're trying to promote our practice, grow it organically through word of mouth? If you said to me, have a nice day, I would say as the practitioner, absolutely, it was great that I was able to treat you today. It's very subtle. It's kind of salesy. But as the, as the healthcare professional, it comes across as genuine because that's what we would expect from somebody. And it goes a long way to making that person feel like, well, you know, they really, they really did value everything that we went through today. Rather than we know in our lives, it, everything is time driven, right? We've got to go see that next patient, unfortunately. But we don't want that patient who's leaving us to feel like that's where our head is already gone is to that next patient. So it's something really subtle that you can do tomorrow with your patients and your practice that really has a big impact on retention. Uh, yeah, I mean, you've just given me a whole new vocabulary, um, you know, to work from, uh, even in my own business, and you know, just kind of helping nurses to stop the transactional conversation in their own practices, their own businesses, because you're right, that's what we do differently, and that's how we can set ourselves apart from the rest of the healthcare system until they catch up with with it sounds like your system but in the meantime we, we have like a really great edge um, by doing what we do best and that is just building relationships with our patients and, and i mean i'll also be honest too i do a lot of vetting on my client side because i can deliver this great experience but if you've got a really bad bedside manner as a <laughs> or a practitioner the reality is that all the hard work that I put in to deliver that patient, it's not going to yield you a result if you can't pick up the, you can't pick up that relationship and continue it. Right. Um, so, you know, I'm probably one of the few people that runs a business successfully that uh, as I'm going into those sales conversations with new clinics, I'm also vetting, are they a good fit for me? And that's one of the things that's hard when you're growing a business that I would say to a lot of us as well is, you know, sometimes you don't have to take every person that offers you the ability to sell them something, really kind of make them the, the thought process of, is this a client that I know I'm gonna have in 12 months? That's a good fit for what I'm providing. Um, because otherwise I'd be spending all my time managing difficult clients, which is not what I wanna be doing. What I wanna be doing instead is growing my business by bringing in more and more clients that fit the program that I'm advocating for. 
Yes. And that's one of the, the great things about businesses too, is like being able to work with people that you really like and that it, it starts with you. I mean, it also, it, the culture of your business always starts with you. So, and this is a great way to do something that doesn't cost anything. It's, you know, it, it just, it's simple and obvious and yet it's not done. <laughs> um, so yeah, thank you for like doing this process because I, I think you're going to change the way that healthcare is just, because that's one of the things too that um, you know I always so so a lot of my nurses when we're building their websites and stuff they don't want to put themselves on the about page and I was just like you know my my uh, I've always called the healthcare like arena just kind of very corporate cold and aloof and I said one of the things that's going to differentiate you is you having that warm presence on your own website and just talking a little bit about you and your struggles and some of your vulnerabilities that you can share um, that they can relate to and I, I think you know part of that is um, what you're it, it feeds into some of this but I think taking it to the next level and just uh, thinking about therapeutic conversations uh, in your everyday conversations with potential clients and uh, clients that you that you have can change everything and I love that and appreciate that because I'd love to even kind of add into that I think that you know largely in medicine especially in nursing some of us are actually quite introverted in terms of who we are um, and I always challenge my peers too, when I see a website that, you know, great layout, great branding, you know, articulates the, the programs and everything else really well, but has nothing about them. And I say, is your belief that the patient is joining your practice based on your branding or are they joining your practice because of you? Because if they're joining because of you, you're not going to be successful if all of your branding is about the brand and the company. You have to make it, again, again it depends on your approach and your bedside manner. But if you're taking the, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you're really kind of like feeling championed, you know, to go out and have these types of conversations, that's why your website has to be about you. And it really causes you, unfortunately, to get out of your comfort zone, but that's healthy um, because that's who they're joining. They're joining your practice, your business, your identity. It's not the brand until you grow it to, you know, a large enough size. Um, and that's where a lot of people struggle where, you know, you say you're a new MD or a new NP with a family practice. Um, you know, those subtle things when people come to your website make all the difference on whether they push the button to inquire, right? Um, versus going to the next person who's warm and fuzzy and gives them this feeling like they're going to be helped, they're going to be served, you know, they can partner in a health journey with them. Awesome. Um, Brett, I'm going to be honest with you. I This is not the conversation I thought at all that we were going to be having today, but I'm absolutely in love with uh, this idea and what you're doing. I think it's amazing. Um, why don't you tell people uh, if you have any last words, uh, but where they can find you, where they can learn more and um, how they can even get started in something like this. Yeah, so LinkedIn, um, I always encourage all of us that are running a business to have an outstanding LinkedIn profile. So you can find me just at Brad Ferris. It's linkedin.com, I think, slash Brad Ferris. Um, my company website is clinicgrower.com. Um, and basically everything that you interact with on the website is essentially you know, a, a picture into what our AI looks like. Um, and unfortunately, there haven't been a ton of conferences or anything like that that I've been able to attend um, with COVID with my border being closed up here in Canada. Um, but obviously, as those start to open up in the next year or two, it'd be great to meet everyone at different conferences across North America. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Thank you.